But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen? That is good news, church family. That's who, that's who we are. And if you're feeling new here to Windsor Road, uh, you have come into this assembly, a people, a people who were once not a people, and a people who once did not receive mercy, but now through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we talk about our vision of being a life-changing community, passionately pursuing Christ. And that's what we want more than anything else. And very quickly, we hope that you feel um, the warmth and hospitality of this church family. I want to issue you a, a, a good morning and a welcome here to the church community. Uh, my name is Randy. I'm privileged to be the lead minister here at the church. And um, I'm going to be in a place called the Fireside Room, which is through these glass doors and to the right. And I would just be delighted to meet with you and have a few moments of your time. Um, be happy to pray at, uh, with you. My wife and I, Sarah, and our other staff, elders, uh, both brothers and sisters in Christ from our church will be in that room. And uh, we would just be delighted. It'd be our privilege to pray for whatever requests you have and to hear whatever encouragements you have as well and please let us know on the uh, on the church app or uh, just uh, write a note to us because we pray for our uh, requests and encouragements every staff meeting and every elders meeting and I want you to know that hmm. so our message this morning is a message that I've tagged cherishing the image of God cherishing the image of of God. And I have several passages of Scripture to share with you this morning. Um, I'll begin with Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. Uh, I'd like to uh, share these verses with you and then pray with us, and then we'll begin our teaching time. Cherishing the image of God. Say that with me. Cherishing the image of God. Thank you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This is God's word. Gracious Heavenly Father, Thank you so much that we can call you Father. And thank you that once again you have gathered us into this, this sacred space, sacred 
because you are here. And once again, Lord, we come hungry for your word, hungry for your truth, hungry to be fed by your mind, your thoughts, Lord. Oh, God, please, I do want to remove myself so that we just hear you, hear your truth, hear your love. Help us see the face of Jesus. Thank you, thank you so much that you give me the privilege of being an under-shepherd of a flock that does not belong to me. And now, Lord, shepherd us with your word and your truth. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Amen. Hmm. So 49 years ago, yesterday, our government issued two rulings, Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, which affirmed a constitutional right for abortion. I agree with the late E.K. Bailey, a Baptist pastor in Dallas, Texas, who said, the controversy over abortion is complex and highly emotional. Don't you think so? He said that it touches issues such as the sovereignty of God, the sacredness of human life, the mystery of human sexuality, women's rights, the rights of the unborn. He said that in 1990. 32 years later, more issues have intensified the heat of the debate. So, for example, uh, now it's debated in a highly polarized country. Now abortion is debated in the context of what political team you may or not be on, which then leads to a debate about what hidden motives you might have for your view. Oh, and then let's not forget the debate on the outsized role of the Supreme Court of the United States, which involves constitutional theory debated by lawyers and politicians and pundits on TV. So the striking thing about the abortion debate in America is how little abortion itself is debated. And even pastors are viewed with suspicion. Why this topic now, Pastor? You know, are you trying to covertly change my political views? For the, record, for the record, I belong to no political party. And I don't discriminate in my disappointment of either major party. Okay? Both could use more Jesus. And as your pastor who loves you, my appointment and ordination as an ambassador for Christ will inevitably bring critique to the city of man, including their political parties. And make no mistake, the political parties of our nation belong to the city of man. So this sermon at this date and at this time is given by one who belongs to the city of heaven. And my intent is to encourage and instruct Christ's church and we are an embassy of heaven. And that, that means critique to the city of man. And that means offering the city of man a better way.
Now, Pastor Bailey said that the issue of abortion revolves over the proper definition of humanity. And that's really where I want to take our message today. I want to answer four questions. Four questions. First, what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be a human being? That is, who does God say you are? Secondly, how does that inform how we treat one another? And I mean to be personal here. I mean the people in your life, your spouse, your children, your colleagues, the one you get along and those you don't. So this goes beyond abortion. This needs to inform how we speak to one another, the dignity we give to one another, the sense of awe we possess when we interact with another human being. The third question is then, so what, what does God think about abortion? And that's an important question. And the fourth question is, does God forgive someone for an abortion, and when does the healing begin? So that's where we're going today. Question number one. Question number one, what does it mean to be a human being? Well, that's an easy question to answer because it's on the very first page of your Bible. It's in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, the first page of the Bible, as part of the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, the first five books of Moses, Genesis 1 was written to Israel, newly liberated from Egyptian slavery and the gods of Pharaoh. And Genesis chapter 1 says that creation is not the result of a battle between the gods or sexual relations between the gods. And that was the typical depiction of uh, pagan idols in the ancient Near East. Rather, Genesis chapter 1 says that creation is a gift of the Creator separate from the creator so genesis chapter one begins with a, a triune person god the father son and holy spirit god as the uncreated creator has never not existed and so genesis chapter one begins with god not with us and so according to genesis chapter one the Bible is not so much God's plan for your life as much as it is your life for God's plan. And Genesis chapter 127 says that the pinnacle of God's creative genius is the creation of the man and the woman, human life. Look at Genesis 127. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, in your Bibles, did you notice that it's, you know, it's often offset, just in the text itself. It's, it's offset. It's like lyrics. It's like verse. It's like poetry. And that's intentional. The intent is to communicate that you are a poem of God. You are a verse in God's poetry. You're not a mistake. You're an original. I could just stop right there. I could just stop right there. Because how many of us have walked into this room here having heard messages 
And we're still hearing those messages, even though we've been away from our families of origin for decades. Or we hear messages from just abusive situations. You're told that you don't matter, or you're told that you're a failure, or you're told that you're damaged goods. And our culture brainwashes us with air-sprayed image of what it thinks beauty is. But I want you to listen to the words of God. I want you to know that you are a poem of God. Oh, it's more than just in Genesis 127, church. God spoke these words to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. I don't think that verse is just meant to apply to Jeremiah. I think that verse is meant to inform us of how God sees us. Job 33, 4 is another verse still. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. You're not a mistake. You're not a mistake. And, and let me go deeper. Because you see, the Bible teaches that God, and note this distinction, God did not make your soul and then wrap it in a body. Rather, according to Genesis 2-7, Genesis 2-7, God formed the man from the dust of the ground and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So in other words, you have a body, you are a body. You have a spirit-infused body, you are a spirit-infused body. You are made in the image of God. Uh, preacher types like myself refer to this phrase, the imago dei. The imago dei, that's Latin for image of God. The imago dei. What is an image? Well, images flood our screens and fill our magazines and catch our eyes on billboards. But in the ancient world, images were not um, pixels and paint. Images were typically statues or monuments and so pagan religions employed sculptures and statues and monuments as physical, visual representations of otherwise invisible gods. But the true God made the man and the woman in his own image to image himself in the world. We humans are living, breathing, speaking, singing, Moving images representing the invisible God to our world so that others might know him, remember him, and revere him. God made us to image him, to show him, to point to him, to display him. He means for humans through words and actions to other humans to convey the greater sense of what he is like and to appreciate and adore him for who he is. That is to glorify him. Images glorify there. 
Images glorify. Images bring to mind someone great. Images project admirable, praiseworthy traits. Images are meant to honor the imaged one. In Exodus 19.6, God said that Israel's identity was to be a holy nation. That together as a corporate nation, they were to image God's holiness. They were to be a kingdom of priests. And this goes far beyond the religious activities such as worshiping together and giving corporate and private prayers. This meant that Israel was to publicly display in the public square the glory of God in the messiness of everyday life. The beauty of God, the love of God, the truth of God, and the heart of God. That's what it meant to Israel in Exodus. And... If you were listening to my opening scripture from 1 Peter, you then would recognize that Peter was echoing that as the church. We are called to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. That is to say, we are to be a spiritual house, a holy priesthood because of Christ, because of Christ. Christ who is the perfect image of God. We're not mere monuments. We are mobile temples who house the Spirit of Christ. So your life's mission, our mission corporately and individually, is to be a portal into the presence of God. We're to be a holy community, a priestly kingdom. And that means that is, a, that is living an elevated life empowered by the spirit of life. Such that when we go out into our offices and clinics and classrooms and out into the public square, the people look at the quality and the elevation of our humble lives and they say, these people know God. What, what a profound purpose to your life and my life. The trademark ethic of divine image bearing, the trademark ethic of divine image bearing is love. And that leads me to question number two. How does that inform how we are to treat one another? And 1 Corinthians 16, 14 is a summary of Paul's words to a divided church, Corinth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all you do be done in love. And that's, that's, that's 1 Corinthians. Now you've just read it. We spent a year in it. I could have said it in a sentence. Let all you do be done in love, 1 Corinthians 16, 14. It's a, it's a succinct summary of Paul's words to a divided church. It's a restatement of 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love does not boast, love is not arrogant, love is not rude, love does not insist on its own way, love is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, it rejoices with the truth, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never 
ends. Love never ends. Jesus was once asked by a teacher of the law, teacher, what does it take to attain eternal life? And Jesus turned the question around, right? Well, what do you think? You're a teacher of the law. And the person said, well, love God and love people. Love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind and strength and and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus nodded, you're correct. Do this and you'll live. And, And you know what the teacher asked next, right? Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And that's, that, that started the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. And you must know, Samaritans and Jews, if you think our country's p- divided, you, you, this is, ours is child play compared to the Samaritans and the Jews. Because there was centuries, it was centuries of divisiveness and partisanship. They were bitter enemies, and yet in the parable, Jesus intentionally tells the parable that the Samaritan is the hero who stopped along the roadside and preserved the life of his historic enemy, even when his historic enemy's clergy (laughs) overlooked him. Jesus said on that roadside is a human life, not an enemy. Jesus wants us to rethink our notion of what love is. So, so, so beyond romantic attraction, Jesus says love is care. More than attachment or friendship, it's caring about. To care about your neighbor is to seek to enhance how your neighbor's life is going. It's to help your neighbor's life flourish. And it includes seeing to it that you honor your neighbor, that you pay your neighbor the due respect for your neighbor's worth so that both their life goods be enhanced, but also their life not be demeaned nor treated with disrespect. So love is about helping others flourish and treating others' lives with respect. And that is doing justice. That is doing justice to others. Love. Love is the supreme ethic of, of image bearing. Hmm. Well, that takes us to question number three. What does God think about abortion? Did you know that in 1965, so eight years prior to Roe, a Swedish photographer named Leonard Nilsson published a photo essay in Life magazine. It was titled The Drama of Life before birth. That was the fastest selling copy in the magazine's history. Now everybody can see that this is a human being. It's 18 uh, weeks. 18 weeks. At this state of scientific understanding, we know that the embryo or fetus is not inert or vegetative until a so-called quickening months into pregnancy. The we, we know now that the embryo is not a cell with potential. It's not like a skin cell. It's not like your appendix. The embryo is a distinct human organism. It's a human being that came into ex- existence at conception and is at one stage of an uninterrupted biological process from infancy to childhood to middle age and beyond. I am no more human now than the day I was conceived. I want you to remember the acronym SLED. 
sled. S, size. Size does not determine whether or not you're human. L, level of development. Level of development does not determine whether or not you're human. Nor does E, environment. Does one particular environment make you more human than another? Are you more human because you're in a car than in a house? In a church versus in a parking lot? Are you more human outside the womb than inside? Where one is has no bearing on who one is. The only thing that changes at childbirth is the child's location. D is degree of dependency. Yes, the unborn are more dependent than you or me, but if dependency determines humanity, what about those who use insulin or dialysis or an organ transplant? Conjoined twins don't forfeit humanity simply because they're dependent on each other's circulatory system. Right now, one of the biggest arguments for abortion is that while the unborn are human, so humanity is conceded. But what's not conceded is the state of personhood. So, so, so now the argument's about personhood. And the assumption is that personhood comes by acquiring capacity. Now, if we don't believe that human life is grounded in the image of God, then we have to ground human rights in what are called capacities. I mean, that is the reason a human being deserves rights and protections is is because they have the capacity, the capacity to reason, the capacity to have self-consciousness, the capacity to, to, to make moral choices, the capacity to know right from wrong. They're moral agents and therefore capable, capacity, worthy of protection. In his 1979 book, Practical Ethics, Utilitarian philosopher Peter Singer from Princeton University wrote that the value of of a life should be based on rationality, autonomy, and self-consciousness. So he says, his words, defective infants lack these characteristics. Killing them, therefore, cannot be equated with killing normal human beings or any other self-conscious beings. And then he says, human human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. Therefore, the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. Peter Singer. Well, if that's true, then neither would those who, who contract Alzheimer's disease. And neither can the severely mentally disabled. If you believe is, uh, abortion is all right, then you really can't protect the rights of any of these other people because their rights are based on capacities. If you don't believe in the image of God, what are you going to ground human rights in? You have to ground it in capacities because that's what's left. You go back to the beginning of the Christian church and here's what you saw. Our spiritual ancestors in Christ entered a Greco-Roman world that was grounded in the idea of rights on capacities. Aristotle said that some ethnicities are just too emotional. They don't have the capacity for higher reason. They deserve to be slaves. 
And in the Greco-Roman world, you had slavery, you had terrible poverty, you had abortion. Very dangerous then. You had infanticide, perfectly legal. You had especially female infants dying of exposure. And by that I mean they would just be left outdoors, taken out like garbage. And you took the elderly and the diseased and poor people, and you did that to them too. You just let them die, and that was legal. But Christians came along, holding to the imago dei, and from the beginning they were champions, champions for life, champions against abortion, against infanticide, against child abuse and molestation. You can read a lot about this in a book I'd recommend called um, When Children Became People, The Birth of Childhood in Early Christianity. It's written by an author named O.M. Bach, B-A-K-K-E, When Children Became People. See, if you believe that human life is of God, then embryonic human life is of God. So our spiritual ancestors, they weren't just one-issue people. They cared for the poor. They cared for women. They cared for refugees. And they didn't make widows remarry. See, in the Greco-Roman world, I mean, most people said, look, if you're a widow, you've got to remarry because that's going to be your social safety net. And the Christian said, no, not if you don't want to. We'll support you. And they were champions of women and champions of orphans and champions of the weak and champions of the poor. And they put the rest of the culture to shame because their belief in the sacredness of life. After all, they were a holy priesthood. They had been called to an elevated way of life by the God who had rescued them from darkness and brought them into the kingdom of light. So what does God think about abortion? Well, what do you think? (laughs) Everybody here knows that this is a human life. I mean, everybody here knows that. God sees abortion as the ending of a helpless human life. I I think that somewhere deep down, whether you're a Christian or not, we all know that. And, And people squirm because they know it. They know it. We were all children brought to term by our mothers, and they didn't kill us. But it's going to take more than changing the law to eradicate abortion. <laughs> I mean, we need a revival. We need a spiritual revival just in terms of of sexual ethic in our country Genesis chapter 2 24 sexual ethic 85% of all abortions in our country are out of wedlock and in most cases the first person to find out that the woman is pregnant is the man who impregnated her so the man is the first responder and the most influential person in her decision about abortion But when the man says, I don't want to be a father, (laughs) well, he he misunderstands the situation. He's already a father. So the question on the table is, what kind of a father 
is he going to be? So it's going to take more than changing the law. It's going to take a change of heart. It's going to take a revolution of love. You see, it's possible to be pro-birth but not pro-life. And God calls us to a world in which women are seen as equal to men regardless of their marital status, in which pregnant women are supported, and in which men are called either to be faithful husbands or, or faithful singles, a world in which babies are valued and provided for, not just by their biological parents, but by the spiritual family writ at large. To solve the problems of abortion, we don't just need one law reversed. We need a loving revolution. And why can't that begin right here, right now, in this room? There's enough intelligence and giftedness in this room right here to change our community. And it's already happening, but I say let's fan the flame and see what the Holy Spirit will do. And if God has put a burden on your heart, if there is room in your heart for a burden from God, will you come see me about this? Come see Michelle Santiago about this. Come see Justin about this. Let us pray for you about this. Is there room in your heart for a burden from God? Well, question number four is what I want to close with, and it's in a very, it's a fine china question. Does God forgive someone for abortion, and when does the healing begin? Because so, so it is not lost on me. It's not lost on me that um, so one in four women in our country between the ages of 24 and 44 will experience an abortion. So it's not lost on me in, in a congregation our size. And some of you are hurting right now. Um, and, and maybe you came in here thinking you're just going to get scolded. I'm not here to tell you, the pastor who loves you, what the truth is and what grace is. And you may be thinking, what can I do to fix this? You know, maybe if I just do more and try harder. Trying harder never solves everything. You can't fix this, but here's what you can do. Listen from, listen from the chief shepherd. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what the senior pastor, the senior, senior pastor says. Yeah. Come, take, learn. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus with your burden. Come to Jesus with your past. Come to Jesus with your stuff. Come to Jesus with your sin. Come to Jesus with your unrighteousness. Come to Jesus with your self-righteousness. Come to Jesus. Come with your grief. Come with your brokenness. The safest person for you to be with in your struggle is Jesus. And, and, and let me say, I believe you need the help of someone with whom you can talk about someone who is safe, 
someone who will listen, and someone who will offer mercy. Um, you know, this is why we have a ministry partnership with Living Alternatives. Patty, I want you to raise your hand. Patty Smith. Patty Smith here at our church serves on their staff. And uh, Patty is a woman of God. And Patty is safe. Forgiveness from God, listen, forgiveness from God comes quickly. Healing is a process, okay? So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Take his yoke. Take his yoke. That, that means putting yourself under his wise leadership and lordship. It means seeking his relief, submitting to his rule. Aren't you tired? You, you, some people say, well, if, you know, what's, what's he going to make me do? You know what? Whatever he makes you do is going to be better than where you are right now. Because you're weary and burdened. So you, it, you know, it's not going to be worse coming to Jesus. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Come, take, and learn. Jesus calls you to learn from him. He has things to teach you that will help you. He wants you to be his priest. He wants you, to, no matter where you've come from, no matter what's happened, he wants you to be his priest. And, and, and as his priest, you, you will have resources from him that will, that will keep you from repeating the past. Because God is both strong and merciful, you can be honest. God, God is bigger than you. God's bigger than your child. God's bigger than your abortion. And He will order your life for good. You're not damaged goods. You're called to trust that the hand on the steering wheel of the universe is a good hand. And your peace and rest do not come from knowing all the answers or from fantasizing about what you don't know. Peace and Peace and, and, and rest will come from trusting that God is for you. This, is, this was Isaiah the prophet's message in Isaiah 54, 4 and 5. Isaiah 54, 4 and 5. The Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. Is that not good news, church? Listen, acknowledging the trauma of abortion and entering the process of healing doesn't mean we have to spend the rest of our lives wounded. And it also means we don't have to pretend that the scars don't exist. And I'll add one more thing and then I'm done. Because this is how God works. The things that we've struggled with God will use so that we can graciously pass on His truth and grace to others. God never wastes a hurt. 
your story is not just your story. Your struggle is not just your struggle. There are many, many women, and I would add men, because men with a conscience are affected by abortion. And we need to know that God, the God we worship, is truly merciful. We who have been healed are called to help others heal. And when you have a room full of people who have been healed by Christ such that they are for others and want to help them heal, do you know what Jesus calls that? Church. Heavenly Father, 